Let's go to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, and we'll read verses 1 to 21. Genesis 1, uh, 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up and she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away. For she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him, and he lifted up, excuse me, and she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand. For I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." Verse 1. In verse 1, it says, The Lord took note, or the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. God took note, or visited Sarah as he had said. This is also said of the miraculous conception given to Hannah in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 2.21, when she also was barren, God gave her conception. And there, too, it says God visited or took note. 
When it, the scriptures speak of God visiting, God will either visit, meaning his presence will come to the individual in either to bless or to curse. You, you know from the Ten Commandments, he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the sons to the third and fourth generations. So when God is said to visit, his personal presence is there either for his favor to be given to the person or his disfavor, his curse or condemnation to the person. In this case, we know it's obvious that it is to show God's favor, his blessing, to fulfill a promise. Notice it says, as he had said. So whatever God said, he is now doing. This is a reminder for us that in Scripture, when God says something, he will do it. Right. Now, if that's a blessing, he will bless us. He will be with us. As Jesus said, behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. Or if he threatens to punish or curse someone, he will indeed do that. Um, there is certainly a day of judgment in which God will judge the world in righteousness, having appointed a man and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, Acts 13, uh, 17, 31. So there too... We, there is a word said, and that is a word of judgment. In this case, it's a word of promise. Notice also verse 1, And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised, or as he had said, or spoken. So whatever comes out of his mouth, in this case, specifically for Sarah and Abraham, he is fulfilling it. Now, when the scripture emphasizes this in verse 1, saying it, Basically, three times, the Lord took note or visited Sarah as he had said, number two, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Perhaps we could say four times, he did and he promised. So in these cases, God is emphasizing that this is based on God's promise. It's based on God's word. It's based on God's will revealed by his spoken word, and when it is something good, it's called a promise. This is not what's happening to Sarah and Abraham giving a child to, uh, to them, Isaac. It's not based on their goodness. It's not based on their works. It's based on God's grace. If it originates with God's will in Scripture, it originates based on God's choice, God's grace, God's promise, God's blessing that he determines or he decrees to give to whomever he wishes. Because he's not doing this for every woman, barren woman, right? He's not doing this for every impotent man, right? He's doing it for Sarah and Abraham. So he chose specifically to fulfill his promise in this way. Further, we, we, we know the evidence of this earlier promise is in chapters 17 and 18. 17, 15 to 21, and 18, 9 to 15. In chapter 17, he said this specifically about Isaac through Sarah to Abraham. And then in chapter 18, he also said it to Abraham, but he was specific, uh, speaking specifically of Sarah in the sense that it was in her earshot. She was hearing it, and she laughed at that point. Right? Even in chapter 17, Abraham laughed. But Abraham laughed in joy in chapter 17, 
In chapter 18, most likely Sarah initially laughed in unbelief, but later she believed, and we know later she believed because of how it's fulfilled right here. Also, we know that she had to, after her initial unbelieving laughter, she had to believe in the laughter of joy like Abraham did because it tells us in Hebrews 11.11 the following. Hebrews 11.11 By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. Even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him, that's God, faithful who had promised. She also considered God faithful who had promised. Then verse 2. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Sarah conceived... And notice the phrase, bore a son to Abraham. This is a scriptural phrase, bore a son to Abraham. And in other cases, we have the wife bearing a child to the husband. Why is that the case? Because the husband has the seed, and the seed is carried by the woman, the wife, and when the wife bears, carries, This is the way it is expressed in the Bible because the seed is the man's and the wife carries the seed on behalf of the man. Of course, the child belongs to both of them, but in terms of origin and in terms of um, uh, authority, it goes from man to the woman on behalf of the man. And the child belongs to both. This is... One of the ways the Bible reiterates the headship of the man and the subordination of the woman under the man. That's what's being said here. Um, To Abraham in his old age she bore. And then further, verse 2, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Of the appointed time. Now, chapter 18 will remind us of the appointed time. Chapter 18 and verse 10. 18.10 And he said, that is God said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. At this time next year. So the time frame between chapters 18 and 21 is one year. Between 18 and 21 is one year. And between that time, we have um, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed and a temporary sojourn in the land of uh, the Negev and this incident with Abimelech, king of Gerar, and then the birth of Isaac in our chapter, chapter 21. Then we have verse 3. Oh, actually, before I go to verse 3, remember, when it says the appointed time of which God had spoken, the scriptures expect us 
to be patient, long-suffering, and wait for God to do whatever He wills in His time. To do whatever He wills in His time. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Ecclesiastes 3.11. Actually, we can start at verse 1. Let's begin at verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. And verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time or literally beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God in his time works. Sometimes he will tell the hearer exactly when, and at other times he doesn't. But he causes us to trust him to fulfill his word in his time. This is what happened to Abraham and Sarah. It's not only for them to wait for God to fulfill his word in his time. It's also for us to believe the same. That he will do whatever he has spoken about us in his time. In his appointed, appropriate, beautiful time. Now verse 3. Genesis 21.3. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. He gave him the name. Chapter 17, verse 19, Genesis 17, 19, mentions the name he should give. 17, 19, but God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. 21, 17, 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Isaac is named according to the command of God. So here in verse 3, Abraham and Sarah obey God by giving the name that God told them to give their son, showing their obedience and faithfulness. They did exactly as God told them. Now, We'll come back to chapter, chapter 21, verse 6. We'll come to that point where God, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Now, he has this name, laughter. Isaac means he laughed, or he laughs, I should say. He laughs. And he's given this name because it is signifying laughter, I believe, in several ways. In several ways, because... In relation to this name, 
we have individuals and people laughing. For one, when in 17, 17, 15 to 21, Abraham was told that he would have a son in his old age, he laughed. But he laughed in joy, in belief, not in unbelief. So he, Abraham laughed, and it commemorates Abraham's laughter. In chapter 18, Sarah, she initially, most likely, laughed in unbelief because the Lord confronts her. And so in unbelief, she initially laughed, it, uh, laughed sorry, and she laughed in unbelief, so it commemorates her initial unbelief, which often happens to people, whether believer or unbeliever, Initially, when they hear a word of God, they might laugh in unbelief. Ha, you you mean that? God says that? But then later, believers believe that word, and sometimes unbelievers will later convert and believe that word. Sometimes they don't. But then unbelievers who don't believe, they continue in laughter in terms of mockery and disdain towards the word of God. Correct? They laugh in unbelief continually until they die and go to hell. And then in other cases, like in chapter 21, verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Well, when the child was born, they held a feast and everybody is laughing or joyful at the feast, right? right. So the people are participating in that kind of laughter and also that there would have been laughter when he was born. So when he was born and then when he's weaned at the feast, at that point, they're all laughing. And then when we get to verse 6, actually, let me just uh, deal with verse 6 right now. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. And verse 1, Isaiah 54, verse 1. Here is a prophecy of the nations, the nations coming to Christ. 54, 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud. You who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married one, married woman, says the Lord. I believe here this is an echo or a, an allusion back to Sarah and Hagar. Because though Hagar was married, Yes, she was a, um, a maid slave, but she was married to Abraham. She, the married woman is the married woman with sons, with children, right? That's what it means. But the desolate woman was Sarah. But Sarah shall have more descendants than Hagar. But in what way? Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants, your offspring, your seed, will possess nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. 
So, in metaphorical, figurative language, he's prophesying that Sarah, through Isaac and Jacob and so forth, that their descendants, believing descendants, among not only Jews but Gentiles, because it says there, your descendants will possess nations, spread abroad to the right and to the left, spreading abroad, meaning going beyond your country to other countries, that there will be those who enjoy this salvation. The salvation that they enjoy will be enjoyed by the nations. And further, Galatians chapter 4. And you might keep a bookmark in Galatians chapter 4. We'll come back to this once or twice again. But in Galatians chapter 4, it says in verse 27, where the Apostle Paul is making the same argument that Isaiah makes in Isaiah 54. He makes the same argument that God has offspring of Abraham among Jews and Gentiles. That's his argument in the whole book of Galatians, but in Galatians 4, 27, he says, 4, 27, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And here he's contrasting God's promises or God's word in reference to Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael and Mount Zion or Jerusalem in comparison to Mount Sinai. So Paul even understands that this laughter has to do with the joy of the nations who hear the gospel and believe the gospel and have this joy um, in reference to their own eternal life and salvation in Christ. So I think this is the reason why, or the many reasons why, Isaac is named Isaac. He laughs. To remind the saints of what God is doing not only in their life, Abraham and, uh, and Sarah's life, but throughout time. Okay, then let's return to chapter 21 and verse 4. 21-4. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. As God had commanded him. Well, when did God command Abraham to do so. In chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, when he introduced circumcision to Abraham, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And so this is going to be one year before Isaac is born. So 99 years old, circumcision is introduced to him. And in 1712, God commands, And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. So all of them were to be circumcised. And we know at the time when he was 99, Abraham himself was circumcised. Ishmael, his son, who was 13 years old at the time, he was circumcised. 
And everyone born, every male in the household, all the slaves, they were also circumcised. So all the males in Abraham's household were circumcised when Abraham was 99 years old. For a 99-year-old man who had never done that, never conceived of doing that, God commanded him and he did it. Though it would have been painful for the man to do so. He did it and he did it faithfully. Well, a year later after Isaac is born, eight days old, Isaac is circumcised. So Abraham made sure Isaac was circumcised. And this would have been his only son, right? His only son from Sarah and the son of promise. And he was still willing to obey God. It says, as God had commanded him. He was faithful to obey. There's many instances in this chapter of Abraham's faithfulness. Then, verse 5. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. He's 100 when Isaac is born. Let's just briefly look at a little bit of the chronology of Abraham's life since this is a significant point. The first one is chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 4. Chapter 12, verse 4. These are the explicit statements of the chronology of his life up to this point. So 12, verse 4 says, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And verse 5, the next verse says that they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. So when he leaves Haran, a city north of Canaan, the land of Canaan, he enters Canaan when he's 75 years old. That means... He lived in the land of promise where God said all of these things are going to happen. Some things that were to happen in his lifetime, other things that would happen after his death, but many things were promised to him while he lived there. It took 25 years for his son Isaac to be born. 25 years. Turn to chapter 17. Chapter 17 verse 1, 17, verse 1. Actually, um, the last verse, 16, 16, the previous chapter, 16, 16, let's do that first. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So he had to wait from age 75 to 86 so that's 11 years. He had to wait 11 years for him to have any son whatsoever. That was Ishmael through Hagar. Then 17 verse 1. 17 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. And that's, this is the chapter. Chapter 17 is the sign of circumcision for the covenant. Then 17 24. 17 24. Now Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
Then we come to chapter 21, 21 and verse 5. Abraham is 100, 100. Further, verse 6, we've explained verse 6. Notice, though, one thing verse 6 says, God has made laughter for me. God made laughter. Right? So Abraham, he needed to believe or trust the word of God. Sarah needed to believe or trust the word of God. Correct? That was all right and necessary. And then if you think about how human events are and how things do happen naturally, we all have laughter or joy for certain occasions, right? And the birth of a child is one of those, correct? So we all laugh. But where does all of this originate? Where do the blessings all originate according to Sarah's own confession in verse 6? From God. God has made laughter for me. God made laughter. God gave conception, right? God gave birth. And in a moment, God gave good health so that he's two or three years old and he is weaned from milk to solid food, right? So God is the one who does all of these things. Yes, human events and human decisions do whatever they do. But who is appointing them? Who is ordaining them? Who is causing them or making them happen? Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. And she's making a true statement. Then verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Right? This happened by a miracle of God. No one would imagine, no one did imagine that Abraham would have Sarah, that uh, to Abraham, that Sarah would nurse children. Nobody imagined that. Nobody said that. It's when they were very old. Of course, when they were first married, they all wished that, right? But not when they were very old and past childbearing years. But now she acknowledges that this originated as a miracle of God. And she also acknowledges. Notice in verse 2, remember we said that uh, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. That was Moses by the Holy Spirit reporting that. So Moses is not uh, a misogynist explaining things only from the man's perspective or something like that. Abraham is not using Sarah as an object or anything like that. That's not what Moses means. That's not what the Holy Spirit means. And how do we have a confirmation of that? Verse 7, Sarah says it. Sarah even says it that way. The woman says it that way, right? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She knows that's the way it works. She's just (laughs) explaining the reality of it, the way God has ordained it to be. She doesn't feel oppressed. She's happy, and she's saying this. Right? Right? She's happy in saying this. So we should, too. A reminder in this passage that whatever you hear from our culture, from feminists in our culture, whether they claim to be feminists or not, 
If it's contrary to the Bible, they are feminists. So we have to resist it. We have to be conforming our values, our mind, our actions to whatever the Bible says. Further, now we go to the next part of this chapter, the next paragraph, verses 8 to 21, which explains the, the weaning of Isaac and the conflict that arose during that occasion. Verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. He grew, and there is speculation as to how old Isaac was at this time, but I think the, the fairest assumption is to say he was two or three years old. That's when he would have been weaned. And so, naturally, especially if children have a propensity to die in infancy, there would be a, a time of joy and celebration because that's one phase or transition in life. Going from a time of vulnerability in terms of health to a time of strength because once you, one starts eating solid food, that's the time of strength and health in the physical body, whether man or woman, boy or girl, right? So he naturally wanted to hold a feast and he does for everyone to enjoy. So it's a happy occasion, right? right? It's a joyful occasion, a time again to laugh, to laugh, to rejoice. But those who are cantankerous, those who are caustic, those who are looking to pick a fight, what do they do when everybody is happy? They stir up trouble. And that's what happens here, which shows the true heart of the person, right? The true heart of the person. Verse 9. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, that is Ishmael, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Sarah sees this happening. They could not resist. And it's likely, since Hagar is also expelled from the household later in the chapter, that Hagar was complicit in it. Maybe she goaded him along, said, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do it. Or if she saw him do it, she did not stop him or reprimand him. She maybe even silently or implicitly approved of what her son Ishmael did. So both of them are guilty. Not just Ishmael, but both of them are guilty according to the way this passage reads, the proper plain interpretation. Both are guilty. Not only are both guilty, but notice verse 9. It says mocking. Your Bible may say laughing. Uh, The New American Standard Bible says mocking. However, notice if you still have your place in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Let's read. Actually, let me begin at verse 21. Remember I said that the whole letter of Galatians is intending to prove that true children of Abraham, offspring of Abraham, are those who believe in the gospel of Christ among Jews and Gentiles. So to prove that, the Apostle Paul begins at verse 21 to explain in terms of a paradigm or in terms of a metaphor or allegory, an illustration, 
the following based on partially our passage in Genesis 21. Look at Galatians 4, 21. Tell me now, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, in relation to the mocking, notice carefully, verse 29. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. Let me read that again. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. He's making reference to Ishmael, born according to the flesh, persecuted Isaac, born according to the Spirit. Born according to the Spirit because it was based on a promise. Born according to the Spirit because the Spirit of power produced a miracle in Sarah and Abraham, right? So, and this has reference to the gospel because Abraham and Sarah believed the gospel. Isaac would believe the gospel, right? And everyone who has faith like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, they are children of promise, because they believe the promise of God. So they are recipients of the benefits of the promise. So it is now also. Now, further, verse 29, the apostle specifically uses the term persecuted. Paul's persecuted word right here in Galatians 4.29 is his explanation or interpretation or clarification of our word in Genesis chapter 29, verse 9, I'm sorry, 21, verse 9, 21, verse 9, mocking. Okay? So I think since they were expelled from the household, that the physical life of Isaac was in jeopardy. That's the sense in which Ishmael was mocking. Mocking verbally first with the thought or the implication that he would physically assault Isaac, even jeopardizing Isaac's own life. Even jeopardizing Isaac's own life. I think it was to that extent, to that extent that Ishmael was mocking or persecuting Isaac. 
Now, Ishmael would have been about 15, 16 years old, and Isaac, two or three years old. So he could have easily looked for an occasion to do that, so that Isaac would not grow up and become more fond to his parents and more protected by his parents. And in Galatians, we do know that there is heretical persecution happening or verbal persecution happening in the book of Galatians, right? Um, But I think that even the Galatian heretics were prone or susceptible to physical persecution, even to death. And why do I say that? Here's one example. Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Galatians 6, uh, we'll start at verse 11. See, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, even, or that is, upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. For I bear on my body... I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The brand marks of Jesus. What does he mean by brand marks of Jesus? And why is he talking about not being persecuted for the cross of Christ? What did Jesus say? If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me, right? Take up his cross. Be willing to die for me, right? Right. So here, Paul is not... He's not averse to being persecuted for the sake of the cross, which implies he's willing to die. And in verse 17, he says, already by this point, there have been those occasions when they have whipped me, uh, beaten me, clubbed me, which he mentions some of this in 2 Corinthians 11, 20 to 30. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Well, when you, if you get 39 lashes five times, you're going to have some brand marks on your body. You're going to have some brand marks. So, and they wanted to kill him, right? Just read the book of Acts, chapters 21 and 28. They wanted to put him to death, even assassinate him if they could to put him to death. And so I think that when Paul says persecuted, that... Ishmael persecuted Isaac, Galatians 4, 29. I think he indeed meant that there was the physical life of Isaac in jeopardy. That's why Sarah said they need to leave the household. Get away, go to another country, so that that might not happen. Back to Genesis 21. 21, 10. 21, 10. Therefore she said to Abraham... Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son 
Isaac. Drive out this maid and her son. Drive them both out. Don't let them remain here. Neither of them. Remember, I think both are the problem. It's not just the son who's the problem, but the maid is the problem. Just like the maid was the problem back in chapter 16. That she would uh, irritate or provoke or um, despise her mistress, Sarah, which she should not do. It says in Proverbs 22.10, Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. Drive out the scoffer. What's a scoffer? Somebody who mocks, right? Somebody who scoffs, and they scoff verbally, but sometimes that scoffing leads to physical violence, right? So drive out the scoffer, and if you drive out the scoffer, contention and strife and dishonor will go away. It'll go away. That's why, that's why people are to separate from contentious people, right? Reject yeah. a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Titus 3, 10, and 11. Reject a factious man, a divisive, contentious man. Give him one or two warnings and then tell him to go away, right? So this is what Sarah is doing. Now, It's at this point that casual, superficial, and even skeptical readers of Scripture say Sarah was a vicious, mean, and vile woman. Hagar, why does Hagar have to leave? And it was just playful laughter. It wasn't wasn't, uh, mockery, and it wasn't persecution. It wasn't the threat of death. It wasn't anything like that. Sarah is extreme, and she's taking extreme measures here uh, unjustly to get rid of this maid because she's just an envious and jealous woman. I'm summarizing the typical interpretation of this passage. I'm not making it up. Even if you read a typical uh, commentary, a typical commentary in a study Bible, something like this will be said, what I just said. They, They take... Uh, Sarah to task. Okay? However, if you still have your hand in Galatians <laughs> chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 30, Galatians 4, 30. But what, remember when the persecution happens, but what does the scripture say? Right. But what does the scripture say? The apostle does not say, but what does Sarah say? He says, but what does the scripture say? Which is scripture according to what Moses wrote. But here I think he means scripture according to what came out of Sarah's mouth that was recorded by Moses to be authoritative scripture, to be obedient scripture. Scripture to that should be obeyed. What does it say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Cast her out. Cast her out, cast out her son. Right? 
So the apostle takes Sarah's words to be prophetic words. So Sarah, at least in this one case, she prophesied or she was a prophetess in this one case. We do know from chapter 20, Genesis 20, verse 7, that Abraham was a prophet. God calls him a prophet, right? Calls him a prophet to the king. So in this case, we have a confirmation of that by the apostle Paul. Now, was Paul a misinterpreter? Something Paul misinterprets this passage. Paul glosses over this passage. Paul takes extreme and uh, wild ways to interpret Genesis 21. Some commentators believe the Apostle Paul to be doing that, but not so. Let's see, not so. I'll show you in just a moment, within the very context, it's not so. Verse 11, verse 11. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. The matter distressed him greatly because of his son. It distressed him greatly. He had hesitation because it was his son. Because it was his son. Now, even though Abraham knows that his son Ishmael is not a saved son, is not a son who will receive eternal life, is not a son who believes the gospel of Christ. He knows that Ishmael is not that son. Yet, it distresses him that his son has to now separate from him. It distresses him that his son has to separate from him. Now, notice something similar to this in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Remember, the rich young ruler approaches Christ and asks him about what he must do to inherit eternal life. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. When uh, Christ tells him what he needs to do, he says, I've done everything since my youth. Okay? I've done all of this since my youth. Mark 10, 21. 10, 21. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. This is how the incident ends. It ends similarly in Matthew, Mark, and and Luke, right? Three accounts of the same incident, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It ends similarly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not imply, do not indicate, do not say explicitly either that this rich young ruler eventually repented or that this grief was temporary or anything like that, which means we are to conclude that the rich young ruler He died a rich, old ruler. Died in his sin. Okay? Is that correct? That is the normal, natural, plain reading of the text. Okay? Now, 
If that's the case, what does it show in verse 21? Jesus still loved him in a sense. He didn't love him in the sense that he was one of his sheep and that he eventually would be saved or anything like that. But he loved him in the sense that he was a human being. He was a human being who was so blinded by his riches and so blinded by his own self-righteousness that he would not believe in Christ. So he had that kind of a love toward him because the image of God was in this man. He's a man. He's not an animal. He's not a tree or a rock. He's a man. And he's so blinded by his sin that he won't come. So he had that kind of compassionate love towards the rich young ruler. And in that love, he told him the truth, what he needed to do. And he wouldn't do it. Okay? If that happened between Christ and the rich young ruler, I think that's the sense in which it's happening here with Abraham and Ishmael. Abraham knows Ishmael is lost forever. He already knows that based on previous chapters like chapter 16. He already knows that. So, still though, his love for his son, his natural son, and uh, that, that natural love caused him to hesitate until verse 12. Caused him to hesitate until verse 12. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, right? But God said to Abraham. Now who's speaking explicitly? Not Sarah, not anybody else, but God, right? But God said to Abraham. Now this will confirm what we said about verse 10 being the word of God or scripture, Sarah was telling Abraham the right thing. She was not a mean-spirited woman. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Through Isaac... Listen to her, whatever she tells you, listen to her, right? Now, another thing, we should not be surprised that one prophet is advising and counseling or commanding another prophet, correct? Because when David sinned in 2 Samuel 11, who arrives to confront David in 2 Samuel 12? Nathan the prophet. But David was a prophet. So when David, as a man of God, a righteous man, a prophet, who sinned, he needed somebody to confront him. So he had Nathan the prophet. Uh, God had Nathan the prophet sent to confront David. So I think similarly here, if both of them are, we both know they are um, righteous, they're saved, Abraham and Sarah, but Abraham's a prophet, Sarah is a prophetess. At this point, Abraham needs a nudge to go in the right direction. So the, the Lord, after Sarah's word was not obeyed by Abraham, God had to tell Abraham, Abraham, what she's telling you is right. You better do this. This is what you should do. So through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Through Isaac, your descendants. Now, when God says this, Your descendants shall be named through Isaac. This is quoted in Romans chapter 9, verse 7. 
Romans 9, verse 7, and Hebrews 11, 18. Hebrews 11, 18. And in those places, this has to do with not merely or exclusively that Isaac would have sons such as Jacob and Esau and that they would have a nation or they would become nations. It has not to do so much with the physical offspring of Isaac, but with the spiritual offspring of Isaac. According to Romans 9, 7 and Hebrews 11, 18. It has to do with the spiritual offspring. That is, all Jews and Gentiles who belong to the Israel of God, as we read in Galatians chapter 6. Remember that? Peace be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. So we are the true Israel who believe in the gospel of Christ. That's what he meant in 17, uh, Genesis 21, 12. 21, 12. And the apostles in Romans and Hebrews cite this as proof. So, meantime though, verses 13 and following. And the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant, or he is your offspring, or he is your seed. Because Ishmael is from Abraham, God had promised back in chapter 16, 16, 10, 17, 20, and now here that God would make a nation of him. So a blessing would come in a physical sense, in a natural sense to Ishmael and Hagar in that way. We'll speak more of that in a moment. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Notice when he arose. Right. which likely means that this was a vision of the night or dream of the night when God appeared to Abraham to confirm the word of Sarah. So he comes to Abraham in the night and as is typical of righteous men who hear a word from God during the night, they don't wake up at 10 o'clock in the morning or at noon. They don't uh, take it casually with their breakfast and whatever other duties they have. They don't just casually do it and then by noon or three o'clock the next day, do whatever God told them to do the previous night. Another example of this is in 22, chapter 22, Genesis 22, after God commands Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah, it says in verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, so forth. He arose early in the morning to obey what God told him the previous night. Likewise here, even though he was uh, distressed about doing it, he did it. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Be'er Shabbat. Okay, bread and a skin of water. Now, when it says bread, it might be a loaf of bread. The context does not specify. Or it could be some food. Because sometimes in the Bible, bread means a meal and whatever accompanies that meal. Actually, in, in uh, the book of Genesis, we have such as it says in chapter 18... 
chapter 18, 5. 18, 5. When Abraham meets the three men, one of whom is the Lord, 18, 5. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. He says piece of bread, but apparently this is a figure of speech, and an idiom, because in verse 7, uh, actually verse 6, 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. So there's the bread, the literal bread, but look at verse 7. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. So they ate the literal bread or specific bread. They ate the meat of the calf. They ate uh, curds and they drank milk. So all of that when he said, eat a piece of bread. So it's likely that there was some food, or even if it was just a loaf of bread, at least we know in verse 14, it's not um, camels loads or donkey loads of food and supplies. It's not to that extent. So because it's not to that extent, and it also it does not say, he gave her a hundred talents of gold or a thousand shekels of silver. It doesn't say anything like that. It's likely that he did not give her those things. So at this point, the skeptics say, they are outraged and they say, look at this, look at this. Abraham, Sarah, and even God, they're all shameful (laughs) because they don't, they're sending the maid and her son away with meager means, with meager means. At the most, a a full meal and and a skin of water, and at the least, just a loaf of bread and a skin of water, but it's not camels loads or donkey loads of supplies. So God is doing wrong here. Abraham and Sarah are doing wrong here. Well, what about the wrong that Hagar and Ishmael perpetrated? over the years, culminating in this. And what about the judgment of God when God sends away the rich empty-handed, right? He he blesses the righteous, but he sends away the rich empty-handed. Or those who deserve punishment, this is signifying that those who are unrepentant, those who are stubbornly pursuing their sin, deserve nothing from God. They deserve meager things from God. That's what they deserve, and that's what this signifies. You deserve to be treated this way. You deserve to be sent out, and you deserve to have meager means. So that's why he did it. That's why Sarah and Abraham did it, according to the will of God. So, with these meager means, 15 and following, the water in the skin was used up, Because why? They're wandering about. Notice that. It says in verse 14, wandering about. For whatever reasons, she did not make sure she knew where she was going. Sometimes people set out on a journey and they do that, right? So she did that. She wandered about in the wilderness. And when she wandered about, whatever she did have was not enough for them. So 
She's in a desperate condition. Verse 15. And the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under one of the bushes, because they are in the desert. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. She separates from him a distance, a bow shot away, because she doesn't want to see how he, um, he thirsts to death. She doesn't want to see him so parched and miserable that he's going to die. Also, as we know from the next verse, he himself cries because he doesn't have enough to drink or enough to eat. So he is crying, she is crying, and she doesn't want to see his last breath because that's what she thinks is going to happen. And why does she think that's going to happen? Because she didn't believe the promise that God made to her personally, Christ made to her personally in chapter 16. In chapter 16, verses 7 to 16, that's when Christ appeared to her. She was also in the wilderness at that time. And, and Christ said, I will make a great nation out of your son. I'll do this. But she didn't believe it. And here she doesn't believe it. So, uh, 17, God has to intervene on her behalf. God graciously intervenes. And specifically, Christ graciously intervenes. Right. I say Christ and we'll see. Verse 17, and God heard the lad crying. So in 16, she's crying. In 17, the lad is crying, Ishmael. And the angel of God, messenger of God, and this is not a created angel. We'll see in just a moment. But it is Christ in his pre-incarnate state, pre-incarnate Christ, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Don't fear. God has heard the voice. Verse 18. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand. Hold him by the hand. And, by the way, in verse 14, if you're reading the, that passage very carefully and, and miss interpreting that passage, notice you might conclude that Ishmael was placed on the shoulder of his mother. But that's not the way it should read. And in verse 18, notice it says, hold him by the hand. So that's the way in which they are um, physically handling the situation. It's not that she had to carry him on her shoulders, because it's going to be hard for a mother to carry a 16 or 17 year old at the youngest, uh, uh, her son on her shoulders, right? So he says, hold him by the hand. So, in, and then he's going to give her water. For I will make a, na a great nation of him. I will make a great nation of him. Remember, this was promised in chapter 16. This was also fulfilled in chapter 25. 25, 12 to 18, this was fulfilled. Great nation be begins with 12 princes in chapter 25. And in 18, it says, who's going to do it? I will. Well, angels don't make great nations. God does, right? God does. So when it says in verse 17... 
God heard the lad crying and the angel or messenger of God, who is this messenger of God? It's Christ. Because Christ says in verse 18, I will make a great nation of him. The quote continues from verses 17 to 18. It doesn't break up. The quote continues. So Christ is speaking and Christ will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. The water, I think, was already there, but she didn't see it because God had closed her eyes to seeing it. And then in 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. God opened her eyes miraculously to see the well of water. Uh, speaking of something like that, 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha the prophet and his servant are threatened, threatened by a foreign army, and the servant is very distraught and thinks, oh no, we're going to die. Yeah. Okay? And so, 2 Kings 6.16 Elisha the prophet tells his servant the following, 6.16. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then, verse 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. Now, these are angelic armies that the servant did not see because God didn't let the servant see yet. First, the servant had to be afraid, and then Elisha had to comfort him, say, don't be afraid, and pray for him. O Lord, open his eyes. Because Elisha was given the ability to see, but the servant did not. I think the same is happening here. The water is there. She did not see it because God closed her eyes to seeing it. But then God opens her eyes. Then she gives him enough to drink. And I think verse 19 is merely an implication of verse 20. That he gave him water to drink, but not just water, but God led them along to find food and water and a place to, to stay. Because that's what verses 20 to 21 say. And God was with the lad... And he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So he continues to survive and grow and become a man, adult, and live uh, a long life. Now, God was with the lad. I said in chapter 25, 12 to 18, he has sons, he has, a, he has descendants, he has tribes, and nations come from them. So God blessed him in that way as he promised. God blessed him in preserving his life, preserving the life of his mother. God blessed him in that he grew, verse 20. God blessed him in that he made him a skillful archer to be able to survive by hunting in the wilderness. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran. Paran this wilderness of Paran is between the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt, between those two countries. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt because she herself was an Egyptian, correct? 21 verse 9, 
Hagar the Egyptian. So she was an Egyptian, and Ishmael marries an Egyptian wife because his mother finds a wife for him. I mention these things because all of these are the blessings that wicked Ishmael or reprobate Ishmael receive from God. Okay? God does bless people who will never be saved. He blesses them in these ways. These are just examples, right? He blesses them in these ways. And in Hebrews 11.20, it says that Isaac blessed his sons, Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. So about the future. Isaac blessed his sons, Jacob and Esau. So, in that case, in the case of Isaac, Esau was an unbeliever who never believed until the day he died, right? So, he was also blessed by his father Isaac, it says. But Jacob was blessed too. How was Jacob blessed? He was blessed physically and spiritually. Esau was blessed just physically. Whatever spiritual things he learned that did not result in his conversion. In the same way here, Ishmael and Isaac. God blesses Ishmael, who dies a reprobate, but he also uh, blesses him with physical things, but he also blesses Isaac with physical things, but especially spiritual things. This doctrine has to be understood properly. If we don't understand this doctrine properly, Here's what happens. People think that because wicked people are blessed physically, inevitably, God has also blessed them spiritually and they're going to heaven. People think that way, right? But that's not true. It's not true at all. We should not believe that. And this has led to false teaching, false doctrine. Okay, Um, there is another false doctrine related to this where there are some people who deny that God gives any grace or any love or any blessings, whatever you want to call it, that he ever gives wicked people any of those things. He only gives them curses throughout life. So, Whatever might be a physical blessing, the doctrine says, no, it's not a physical blessing, it's a curse. Well, it becomes a curse later, but at the moment it's not a curse. And this distinction they don't understand, that God will on the day of judgment use the blessings he gave to them to heap the curse of eternal punishment on them because even though they were abundantly provided for, It did not make them look up to God and be thankful. Thankful to the point of repenting of their sins and believing in the gospel of Christ. So these doctrines have to be understood properly so that we not misinterpret the eternal destiny of our souls and the souls of other people. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.